Alrighty. Ko te mihi tua tahi ki te atua, ko te mihi tua rua ki tēnei whenua, ko te mihi tua toru ki a koutou katoa. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Ko Hana Aho, my name is Hannah. I'm on staff here as presence lead around the well. And I'm bringing today's message out of Acts 13 through 15. And so please open up your Bibles and we will be reading the physical word as there are no slides. Um, it'll be great. <laughs> We're going to get into the word. Um, just a week heavy that I was a, a bit of a last minute ring in for this morning. Clinton Tonga. <laughs> You're good, Sarah. Um, so, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go on this journey together, and the Lord is gonna move powerfully. <laughs> so, yeah, let's um, join with me as we pray. God, we we thank you, thank you for the gift of your word, the gift of your, the beginnings of your church. God, would you reveal what you have for us this morning out of your text? Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So over the last few weeks, we've been tracing the journey of the church as it was birthed and following the, the life and resurrection of, of Christ. So Clint preached on how the Spirit was filling Jerusalem, the church was coming alive in Jerusalem. And then last week, we heard from our national superintendent, Brett Jones, speak on the, the movement out of Jerusalem, that call that we have to get out of Jerusalem as the gospel picked up and it started moving into areas around Jerusalem. And then today, we're, we're continuing the story with the beginnings of the gospel moving into the nations. We're looking at kind of cross-cultural and multicultural mission. And then next week, Clint will, will take it global and see, see what happens in the rest of the book of Acts. So hands up if you've been reading Acts alongside this series. So many of you, awesome. <laughs> um, as we, I've been reading it and been really challenged and excited. I think as we, as we sit in this story of God establishing his church, it's just, yeah, there's a, a, a fire in it, a real a nimbleness to how the gospel was moving. And it's been disrupting my, my normal way of being, and I'm, I'm open to it, I'm here for it. It's not necessarily comfortable seeing the boldness and the readiness with which the apostles preached and lived against my own life, but I'm, I'm choosing to, to hug the cactus, to embrace the uncomfortable, to, to, to get the most out of it. And I think there's a, there's a word in that for us that we need to allow God to disrupt and to inspire us, to shake us from our, our current reality. And we see through, through Acts, most of the the sermons that the apostles preached in, in synagogues, they kind of all started, like you see the, um, the sermon of St Stephen before the Sanhedrin, Paul oftentimes in synagogues, they begin by going back to the beginning of their own story. They sit in the Torah, through the creation, through the patriarchs, and they preach, they preach their own story. They go back to the beginning to remind themselves who they are and that the heartbeat of multiplication and the salvation that comes through Christ has been there from the start. So I think it's, it's paramount for us as a church that we also go back to our beginnings as a church here in the book of Acts. And in a similar way, we can let the story that we have been grafted into shape how we live here and now. 
the, the move and shape of what God is doing today, it might, it might look new or feel different to how it did back in, back in 80 and the 40s. Um, but it's the same multiplication heartbeat, and it's the same God, and he works in the same way. This is our beginning, and this is who we are and who we are to become. Hmm. And if, if there's quite a big gap between how we see our current reality as a church and as followers and what we're called to here in the scripture, um, yeah, as I said, let's, let's lean into that. As Isaiah 66 says, God does not bring something to a, point, a painful point of birth without bringing it to delivery. There's a real invitation to lean into the challenge and the, the uncomfort that we move to life by going through death. Because despair is a virtue if it drives us to the sufficiency of God. So let's open up Acts chapter 13. And we'll read the first few, few chapters. So it's spring in AD 45. We're hanging out in Antioch, which is on our map. So this Antioch on the side. So current day, modern day Israel and Gaza are down south below the Syria. And so we're sitting in the church in Antioch up there. And this is the first time we see a city or a church outside of Jerusalem play a central or crucial role in the, in the story of the gospel. So we're in, in Antioch, which is a, a key trade location. It was a, a multicultural hub of its day, and it was a really strategic city for God to, to move in. So I'm going to read. I'm reading from the ESV just simply because that's the book, that, the Bible that I have, and and I think it's, there's something quite cool in hearing one version being read while you're reading the NIV in your seats, because um, it really gets, gets the word into you. So, Acts 13.1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. There was Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. That's a pretty, pretty hefty roll call, if you like, at the time. So in that room, we've got Barnabas, and Barnabas, he was a Levite from Cyprus, the wee island. Next, we've got Simeon, or Niger, who was possibly, probably scholars say, he was a black African man. Lucius from Cyrene in northern Africa, another African. We have a childhood friend of Herod, here at Antipas, the man who killed John the Baptist and who played a pretty big role in Jesus' trial. So someone with a pretty, pretty rough past in terms of the story of the gospel. And then Saul, who was a Pharisee who was born in Tarsus and educated in Jerusalem. Another person who persecuted and, and played a big role in, in persecuting the church. But this church is, it is alive, it is vibrant. These people are sold out for Jesus. And there is a depth that God is weaving in their diversity and their multicultural identity. So already we see just a few steps removed from Jesus that the church is multicultural. It is echoing God's heart from the very beginning. We can see Jesus as a, as a type of new Israel, where Israel was initially, as a nation, blessed to be a blessing, that through them the salvation of all nations would come to the Lord. But they... They didn't quite live up to that through the Old Testament. So Jesus came, and he is, in Christology, he's seen as a, as a new Israel. So that through Jesus, all nations can be a blessing. And through his church, this is fulfilled. 
So just as we were singing in that King of Kings song, when, when the spirit lit the flame and the church of Christ was born, at that moment at Pentecost, back in Acts 2, the, the move of the spirit was seen through languages. It was the, the gift of a diverse set of languages that everybody who was in Jerusalem at the time from different lands that spoke different languages, they heard the gospel in their own tongue. So this echoes the, the heartbeat of the church that is for the nations, that is for all people. We saw in, in Philip and his interaction with the Ethiopian eunuch, it was a really big deal for him to cross those cultural boundaries and meet with that man and share the gospel and baptize him. But that was powerful. He then went back to his own communities. We see it in our, in our namesake, the story of Jesus in John chapter 4, as a Jewish rabbi connecting with a Samaritan woman. The gospel was made to cross cultural boundaries. And we only have to look at current day Israel and Palestine and the, the war and the genocide that is happening over there to grasp the depth of these cultural differences that ruled in, in the same way as they did back then. In being, in being multicultural, in reaching many different people groups, the church in the ancient Near East had so much more to overcome than us. These differences were far more ingrained than what we, what we feel like we see here. To take the gospel in love to a people that your brothers are waging war against, that's huge. And there's a, there's a level of defiance in this spreading of the gospel like this that is it's somewhat galvanizing, right? There's, a, there's an oomph to it. But here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, we quite, likely, we quite like to proudly position ourselves against these other or extreme cultures. It might sound a bit like, I just cannot imagine hating another culture enough to kill them or enough to go to war against them. Or as we look at some, some right-wing Americans that we might see on the news, imagine being as patriotic as them. We couldn't do that here in New Zealand. But, but clearly, as, as we look around this room here, at the well, it is naive to say that we are, oof, we're not, at least we're not as mono-ethnic as those other places. Lord have mercy. So how did the early church do it? How did they break those multicultural boundaries? How did they move the gospel? They went, they moved, they got out of Jerusalem. They moved all over Asia. So this is one of Paul's, his first missionary journeys few loops. They prioritized some key themes as we read through Acts is that um, the apostles prioritized big cities, trade areas, and multicultural hubs. These were strategic places for the gospel to take root and move into the rest of Asia quickly. So Paul and Barnabas, who we saw were sent off at the start of Acts 13, they were Jews of the diaspora. They had a strong Jewish identity, but they also knew what it was to be outside of Jerusalem and other places as a Jew. So they sought out synagogues in these strategic cities and that's where they started. So their first stop on their journey was in Barnabas's home of Cyprus. They journeyed through the whole island preaching at synagogues along the way. And then the, they move up to the other Antioch in the north which scholars say Paul likely would have had a lot of connections to and they could have written to him and called him to come there. 
So they, they went multiculturally on existing networks and connections that they already had. So it's a way of God kind of moving through the gifts and skills that we already, already embody. So while they might have started in preaching in synagogues in these key major cities, they didn't, they didn't stay there. They did many, many um, signs and wonders, which is so cool that signs and wonders accompany the preaching of the word. As they were in these places and their connections were primarily Jewish, through that they met or they ran into many, many people. We see the, the magician in Acts 13. or Yeah, it's really cool. And they, secondly, they, they did the work of cross-cultural communication. So we see different presentations of the gospel when Paul and Barnabas preached to Jews versus to when they preached to Gentiles in different contexts. So in 13, verse 16, as Paul was kind of invited to share, he preached a similar message as we were talking about, like starting in their, in their whakapapa and their genealogy as a Jewish nation, moving through, and he identifies the whole time convincing them that Jesus, the man Jesus, is in fact Christ the Messiah. But then we see when he preaches to, to non-Jewish audiences, like later in 14, 15, when he's preaching, he uses um, agrarian terms to start so that the people would have understood. They, he says, so Acts 14, 15, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So he was speaking to a, a non-Jewish crowd and he pulled on the things that they would have understood, things that signposted to the truth of God. So in a Jewish context, he identified that Jesus was the Christ they were looking for. In a Gentile context, he identified that the God of Israel was the God they're looking for and that through Jesus is salvation, which takes skill. He knew, he knew the people he was talking to he was able to communicate that. We see it later in Acts 17, which Clint will preach on next week. But when Paul is speaking in Athens, up on top of the Areopagus at the, the Acropolis, at the Parthenon, he, um, has anyone been there, been to Athens and Greece and stood up there? It's pretty powerful, standing there. I was there last year and standing in that spot, which was so distinctly secular or so distinctly non-Jewish. And for Paul to stand there and preach about this, this unknown God, he was grasping on things that were common in that secular culture and taking it and pointing it to the truth of Jesus. And that's what we can do in our cross-cultural communication. Hmm. There's a, in thinking of the story of the gospel here in Aotearoa, there's a bit of a whakatoki that's I've heard a lot lately, which goes along the lines of if, if the seed of the gospel as it enters a place does not grow and clothe itself in the language of the land, it will die as it becomes a plant. So if you think about the, the seed of the gospel going into a different culture, in, within that seed is all the DNA, the truth, the core tenets of faith in Christ, of salvation, that Jesus is the only way. That's within the seed, but as it goes into a place, it has to go as a seed to then take root and grow and develop 
inside and within that culture so that from the inside out it can shape and challenge and, and confront the, the pieces of that culture that it needs to. But it also, to take root in that place in those people, it needs to, to look like and sound like the culture that it's in. So in a, in a cross-cultural missions context, I spent about 18 months in missions in 21 countries before COVID, COVID brought me home. Um, and I, the biggest thing, I was with an American group of people for that whole time, and my biggest thought was, what if we took the, the truth of, of a Jewish Jesus and the, the context of the, that early gospel and translated it straight away into the local context in which we were working without going through this kind of westernized or Americanized version of Christ or the church. And I saw this in, in Cambodia, in Barambang. We, um, so down in Phnom Penh, we went to this very multicultural church. It was awesome. It was like a picture of heaven. People praying in so many different languages. It's really powerful. And I connected with a Filipino girl there who actually lived in Barambang as a mission worker. So we went, because the, the nature of our trip was pretty flexible. We were open to just kind of similar to Paul and Barnabas, just kind of go where the Lord, where the Lord led. So we took, took my team up to Barambang and stayed with um, this girl, Jaziel, and the, the family she was working with. And so they were all a Filipino family and a couple others that had come from the Philippines to Cambodia on really intentional Bible-based mission. So they learnt, they spent a couple years learning Khmer, the local language, and they communicated, and it was quite an, an unreached small village that they were working in. Um, and when we were there, we got to help them in their Bible school. So they'd got a team of maybe 10 or so students that they were training through the scriptures and training up in ministry in the local language, in their local context. It was amazing. And now I see just this week on, on Facebook, they're posting that they are engaged in a, a mission trip in another remote village in Cambodia um, with the students from that school. So Filipinos came to Cambodia, shared the gospel, it took root in a local Khmer context, and then these local Khmer went to another village and shared the gospel themselves. It was beautiful and so, so cool to see that the gospel is spreading, that it's, it's at work and attractive everywhere. So Paul and Barnabas, they went all over the, the known world at the time. And their, their process in each place was to, first of all, ta take the gospel into places that it was not. So they went into places where the name of Jesus was not known, where the story of salvation was not known. When they were there, they preached the word of God. They made disciples through preaching of the word and through intentional community. They made disciples in these places. And thirdly, they gathered those disciples into communities and they met in homes, which was pretty countercultural for the culture of that time to have a, a, a religion or an ideological movement meeting in homes. They gathered them into communities and then they strengthened those communities. They stayed to strengthen them. And then before they left, they always appointed local leaders. We never see Paul and Barnabas settle down to pastor a local church in these places. They were always on the move, making disciples and embedding that vision of multiplication into each church that they, that they started. This is not a, just a five-step process to numerical success in terms of church planting. 
as we see Jesus, he turned away from crowds. He turned away from people when they rejected his call to costly discipleship. We see in the apostles in 1351 where they shook off the dust of their feet when they left and they went on to Iconium. So there's a, a discernment in this. But this is what we see them do time and time again. And after staying in one such place in, in Lystra, which is kind of in the middle there, south east of Antioch at the north, and they're in Lystra. They, he, Paul and Barnabas are preaching boldly. They've just been part of a healing in a public place. And then the crowd turns on them, a crowd that was so engaging to start with. They quickly turn and they stone him. And it's just these few verses up in 14, 19 through 21. Paul gets stoned. He, we don't, it does, it's not definitive if he dies and then rises again, or he just didn't die. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. So he was in Lystra, got stoned outside the city, went back into the city that same day to the throbbing crowds of people that were stoning him, and then he hightailed it to Derby for a little bit and then waited out just until it was marginally safe enough and then went back into Lystra to continue the work of building up the church there. How many of us would do that? <laughs> you're in a, a foreign place, someone stoned you, and you're so passionate and on fire with the gospel that you go back to make sure the church is all right. Whew. And only once that work was completed, as we read, they... In 1422, he strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. There's something pretty powerful in if, if you were a church that had just been planted by this madman who came from Jerusalem and just got stoned, if he came to your church and said, and was strengthening you in the, the, the way of Jesus and sharing the, the power of, of this new way of discipleship, I think that's pretty, pretty galvanizing. It'd be hard not to, not to live in a similar way. So there's real power in this, this move of God. These, these churches began to grow as part of the multiplication, these churches were designed to grow and to exponentially grow, to grow and plant new churches that grew and grew and grew and grew. And in each plant of a new church, there was embedded uh, that sense of, okay, we need to multiply as well. They didn't stay to themselves. But we see back in Acts 13, so Paul is, this is when he's, um, before he's in Lystra, he's speaking to a predominantly Jewish crowd and they, he, he preaches one Sabbath, and they love it. So 1342, the people begged these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. They're hungry for the, the teaching of Paul, this truth of the gospel. And so he comes back the next Sabbath, and they preached again, and then instantly the crowd turns on them. It says the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, 
Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Isn't that fascinating? Where these people who are blessed to be a blessing by God, they see finally people are flocking to hear the truth of the gospel being preached and they get jealous. They're not about it. They would rather stay in their little holy huddle, fulfilling, fulfilling all their laws and excluding others from the grace and power of Christ. I remember as, so I've been around the well since we started in 2012, um, end of 2012 with previous services, and seeing, we were a small church for a long, long time, and then it kind of exponentially started growing, and seeing the, the beauty of that, of how God kind of used, um, used this place to, to bring people to himself and for his kingdom to grow here at the well. And I wonder if there's any, because the church has changed. Like when we started, it was a small community. We were, a lot of stuff was done in homes. It was, it was really nice and beautiful. It's quite easy to get nostalgic looking back on those days, being like, oh, it was a really nice time. Um, but that's not who we're designed to be. We're designed to grow, to, to enlarge the kingdom of God, to bring his word to more and more people. Yeah, so I wonder if there's any of that same jealousy within us that maybe whatever size the church was at when you joined and it now looks different and I'd, I'd challenge you to, to hug that cactus to press <laughs> press into what God is doing through the through the growth of his his body mm. another key point of this multiplication movement is the sending and release of each church's or community's best leaders so we saw Paul and Barnabas were sent off at the beginning of Acts 13. And then in fifth, down in 1522, we see the Jewish council sending off. Um, so they sent Judas called Barsabas and Silas. And these were leading men among the people. So they sent out their, their best people, the, the leaders among them, to join with what Paul and Barnabas were doing. What would it take for a new church to send its best people, its key leaders, to help the movement of God as it is moving cross-culturally? I think it has a kind of a double function. As you send your best people, you are trusting God more and more with whatever you've started. And maybe, yeah, th think of like, like a business. You've started a business, it's going really well, and then you send your, your founding member, your CEO, off to, to start a new one, and you're left being like, oh, what am I going to do now? Um, but that, it, it deepens your faith as you live kind of one step ahead and sending people that you would normally rely on, normally trust on to, to other places to, to spread the good news of the gospel. It functions to build your trust in those that stay behind. And it leaves space to raise up leaders to fill their places. And it serves, serves the mission by sending um, gifted leaders and apostles into other spaces. Another, another key part of this move of God into multicultural spaces is that it is marked by celebration. We read so often of, of good reports of discipleship and multiplication happening in the churches that they have already been, been a part of. Yeah, like in 1427... 
when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed to celebrate. There remained no little time with them. There's something about that, that sharing of, of the witness of God um, is, is galvanizing and encouraging. And we need to. We need to celebrate and have festivals. Those were some of the, um, the fa- my favorite times on my time of missions around the world is when all the, because we're a team of four different teams and we'd be in different countries and then we'd come together every couple of months and just share stories of how God was moving, moving among us. And it was so um, inspiring and grounding to actually celebrate the work that God was doing. We see it in, in like the Jewish calendar. They are marked by festival after festival. Yeah, I wonder what we have lost in, in the West as the church became more of an institution or a dominant ideology. That there's something about it when it's a subculture, when it's the small, nimble movement of God, that it is um, celebrated and the stories are told over and over again to set that culture. But when it becomes this institution, just a normalized thing, I think we lose the power of that celebration. Yeah, we need to... We need to disciple people. We need to raise up leaders. We need to send our best people to new places. And we need to celebrate. There's a, um, a story I was reading just this week of a, a couple in Austin, Texas. And they were both um, working professionals. She worked for Google. He worked for a consulting firm. Um, but they had a real passion for the gospel. And God was doing something among them. And so they started in a, in a part of Austin that was very, it was full of immigrants and a lot of different cultures. They intentionally went, went there and hung out there and worked in their businesses in that place too to meet with people. And churches were born, it was amazing, just a real catalyst of events. And then they turned from kind of more like on the street ministry back into their workplaces. They took the same methodology into their workspaces and people, churches were born in, in work lunch times. It was amazing. But the, the real key that stuck out to me was the, um, the eagerness with which people responded to the offer of prayer. That was their, their biggest in, in a workspace. So I think that's key for us as we move into our workspaces. Even this week, who are the people in your workspace that you can take out for lunch? Yeah, one of their, their methods was to take someone out for lunch, listen to their story, share their own story, and wrap it in the language of the gospel, sharing how Jesus had come through at a hard time, and then to offer prayer for the other person. And prayer was more often than not accepted and willingly, willingly accepted, and they were able to pray for people. And through that, there was many, many churches that began, and in homes as well. So I, I challenge you this week to offer, offer prayer for someone, someone at your work and someone of, a, of another culture, what, what boundaries are you crossing in doing that? Hmm. As you know, we are planting a church in 2025, next, next, next year. <laughs> um, <laughs> the year after next, thank you. Um, so we are hosting an, infam- an interest gathering on the 11th of December, so that is next, next, 
Monday. <laughs> Monday afternoon. Um, 11th of December, here at 7 p.m. So if there's anything in you that is, God is stirring something as we've been talking about prayer and, and the movement of God as churches were planted, um, we need to get a team around this. So come along to the interest gathering. It's no obligation. It's not turn up and you're going to go plant a church. <laughs> it's turn up and hear some of the heart and vision behind what we're doing and to see where your gifts and calling um, might align with that. So we'd love to see you on the 11th of December. We'll send out some more comms on Monday night here. Mm. But I just want to close with that piece in so chapter Acts chapter 13 as Paul has kind of preached to the synagogue and he's summing up the, the journey of salvation. Um, verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So in Jesus, there is freedom from everything that we could not be freed by the law that we try to live by, by standards that we set for ourselves, by other religions, by ways that we're engaging with trying to get better. There is freedom in Jesus. So, I would, I would put that out there. Was, does anybody here this morning want to receive Christ as their saviour? There's an invitation to come to come for prayer up at the cross after you receive communion and receive Christ this morning as your saviour. That there is freedom, freedom in him from everything that you could not be freed by the, your own methods. Yeah, let me pray. Father, we, we thank you. We stand in awe of how you've moved through through your church and establishing these rhythms of multiplication. God, we, we welcome the work of your spirit within us. Would we be interruptible? Would we align ourselves with your heart this week as we go into the places that you've called us? Would we see our, our city look different because of the way that you are shaping us? Would we see more cultures come to know you, God? In Jesus' name, amen.